I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We'll study verses 1 through 5. Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. As we begin this chapter, Paul's going to take up the topic of God's sovereign election of people unto salvation. And some of you may be visiting today and you think, wow, we just cannot come to a Presbyterian church without hearing about election, about predestination or something like that. They get it right off at the very beginning. And I just want to say, before we go there, let me once again remind you, this is the text where we are in the word of God today. Preaching on this in this chapter because that's what the Lord has given to us. And that is what is plain for the encouragement of God's people. I do recognize, however, that this is a hard topic. And it's not because the Bible is hard to understand on the issue. But rather, it is a challenge often for people to reconcile it in their minds and hearts and to accept it. And I also want to tell you that Paul, in this chapter, he's not writing some sort of manual in theoretical cosmology to show you how the world might possibly behave under its creator. Likewise, this is not a book of systematic theology. No, there is a real problem beneath the text that presses Paul to write specifically on this in this chapter. And it's a problem that hangs over all of his ministry And over the gospel ministry as a whole, both in that time and I would say likewise today, and it's this problem. God's chosen people, the Jews, have rejected God's Messiah. God's chosen people, the Jews, have rejected God's Messiah, Jesus Christ And so Paul is faced with this, and there is this question, how can this be? If God is true when he makes promises, if his word is everlasting, how can this possibly be? And Paul struggles with it in himself. Because the Jews are not just people over there, they're his brothers, they're his kinsmen, they're his family who have not been converted and who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so under the burden of that, he struggles. And he does so before the face of God. And so let us read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, 
And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, is the law of the Lord, and sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us understanding. Give us tender hearts. Help us to be receptive of your eternal character, your everlasting decrees, and of your personal mercy and grace. O Lord, bring us into submission to your will and help us to rejoice in the things that we can understand and likewise in the things that are withheld from us and hidden in your being. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have unbelieving family members? Maybe it's a father or a mother. They took you to church your whole life. They did the right thing, the thing that's acceptable by society. You, your brother, your sister, maybe you alone and You had a family pew and you attended your entire life sitting with them, knowing that they believed it was a good thing, a moral thing, a socially right and upright thing, yet in your mind and in your heart, you simply know, my mom, my dad, they took me to church, they taught me a religion, yet they didn't believe it. Or maybe some of you have brothers and sisters, close in age or maybe separated by some distance, and you walk through life with them and you love them and you know that they were in the same household as you. And maybe in this circumstance, both mom and dad are believers, grandma and grandpa are believers, aunts and uncles are believers. Yet nonetheless, every Sunday, every week, every day, they hear the same word that you hear. They even were baptized as you were baptized. They attended all the Sunday schools. They received the certificates yet they've denied Christ. They've gone far from him. They've turned their back on their upbringing. And all of the things that the Lord used in your life unto your salvation so that you would hear of Jesus and see Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit believe in Jesus and you were saved. Yet that didn't happen for your brother. It didn't happen for your sister. Instead, they were hardened. Or maybe worse than all of this, parents... Have you got an unbelieving child? Your little boy, your little girl who's grown in your household and who you every day read the word of God over and prayed over and sang the word of God over and pleaded with the Lord as if you had hold of his feet, Lord, save my child. Every Sunday you were faithful. Every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you were faithful and the child was bathed in the word and bathed in the water of external baptism. Yet, nonetheless, as they've grown, they've turned their back on Christ and denied him and walked away from his mercy and away from his grace. And yet, you know that our God is a God of covenants. 
that he makes promises of himself on his own behalf, that he will be your God and the God of your children. And you sit and you think, Lord, I know that's your promise. Lord, I know that's in the word. And I poured your word over them. And if I could save them, I would have done it by exertion and by deeds. How can this be? How is my little girl, my son now grown, how are they not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ? How can this be? Don't you care about my family? And mother, father, your heart breaks. And this is a hard sermon for you to hear. Because you, like Paul, have struggled every single day over this specific thing because there's one thing faithful Christian parents want for their their child above all other things and that is to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ I don't care if my son's my daughter I don't care if they make millions I don't care if they make nothing I don't care if they live in a house encrusted in gold or in a shoebox if they know the Lord Jesus Christ that's all faithful Christian parents and faithful Christian families ought to want And it's pain. And it's a burden. And this is what Paul is struggling through in verses 1 through 5 and in the rest of this chapter. And he is laboring to reconcile a God of promises who mightily saves the lost with a God who has not saved their loved one. And so in verses 1 through 3, I want us to consider the painful burden of unbelieving family. The painful burden of unbelieving family. And then in verses 5 and 6, the absolute necessity of saving faith. Those two things. The painful burden of unbelieving family, 1 through 3, the absolute necessity of saving faith, 5 and 6. And so as you come to verse 1, we find Paul and he begins to make a vow. He swears And he does it two times over, maybe three, depending on how you want to divide the text of verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. What I'm saying is true, and it's true because I'm a Christian. And I'm in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect in holiness, inviolable. I'm telling you the truth in this passage of Scripture. What I'm about to say, I'm not lying. There's sincerity. Paul continues on and he gives the second, the second portion of his vow. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you can't judge me. You can't see the depth and the sincerity of my heart. But you know who can? The Holy Spirit. Who divides between bone and marrow. Who sees the very core of a person. Before God I can tell you very sincerely. That what I'm about to say to you. Is absolutely sincere. And you may say. Why would Paul start out like this? Because we've transitioned between chapters. Chapter 8. The great chapter of justification by faith. And here now in chapter 9. Here we're slowing it right down. And the apostle Paul is getting very serious. And very personal. I wonder. The scriptures don't tell us. It's a bit dangerous to presume regarding the scriptures. 
But it does seem that Paul is defending himself against an accusation. Paul, you've become a Christian and you know what you've done? You've abandoned your mother, you've abandoned your father and your brothers. You've just turned your back on us all. You've abandoned Jews and Judaism. You've left and you don't care about us. Or maybe there's even an accusation that he's anti-Jewish or anti-Israelite against the people of God, against his people, against his family. Maybe there's that charge against him. And Paul is saying, no, I need to tell you very seriously, very sincerely, my heart. And so in verse 2, Paul holds it out to you and he says, look at this. This is what I'm exhibiting to you as the world. And he writes this to the church in Rome, a diverse church, a church that's got lots and lots of Israelite and formerly Jewish Christians and lots and lots of Gentile Christians, one that knows all sorts of division. And again, Romans is a book of doctrine for life, how faith affects how we live, the truth of God brought into the trenches of life lived. And this is what Paul says. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What of the Jews and what of the Israelites? How do you think about them, Paul? How do you feel on them? And Paul says, my heart is broken. The greatness of his sorrow is if it's a mountain that cannot be scaled. It's more than he can even express. His heart is so overwhelmed with grief over the state of the people of Israel and their rejection of Jesus. The intensity of the sorrow, that's what you're intended to understand. It's not just something you skip over. We might ask somebody, how was this or that event? How was the concert? Oh, it was great. And that means generally, it wasn't so bad. Especially around here. No, he's saying it's more than I can express. The sorrow is more than words can hold. So the intensity of his heart and his sorrow over the unconverted state of Israel is significant, but then it's unceasing. The duration, the unceasing anger, the day by day, hour by hour, week by week, month by month, experience that Paul has over the unconverted life of his brother, his mother, his father, his grandfathers, and all of his family, it overwhelmingly weighs on his heart and he just Before the Lord, all he can do is confess it in a few words. It's painful. And you can see the depth of the sincerity in there there in verse 3. The weightiness of the burden. He says, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I want to say immediately that Paul doesn't think he can be cut off. This is just hypothetical. He's trying to put into words. He's he's not saying, I'm going to leave Jesus just so they can come in. Rather, he's saying something like this. I love them so much. And I'm so terrified of what's coming. 
that if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to be cursed and cut off from the presence of God, that I would be willing to give up my salvation and to throw myself in front of the truck and to take the burden, to take the punishment, the condemnation, the damnation, and the separation from God for them, if, if that were possible, that we could just trade places. Like a parent that jumps into the road, pushing the child to safety and takes the oncoming traffic. He's saying, I love them that much, I would do that. And why am I pointing this out to you? Yes, it's the next verse, but I'm pointing this out to you because in ourselves as Christians who experience this sort of thing, we're not Jews, but we're Christians. We're covenant people. We are the people of God. And we have families that we believe God has made promises to who themselves have not come to faith in Christ or have denied the previous confession they made. How do we respond? Well, I'll tell you that there are two that I've regularly seen within the church or experienced in myself. Two responses. Both are wrong from the outset. The first, I think, is anger. Anger. And uh, maybe a brother or sister experiences this. Maybe a mother or father experiences this. A variety of ways this may come out, but... You've got this person, they've been with you, they've been in the family pew, they've been in all of the things throughout the whole of life, all of the benefits that they could have, and yet they're not walking with the Lord. And it's usually, there's other parts of the lifestyle that are equally as offensive. Fill in the blank, we could go down a great list. They've got a filthy mouth that overflows and curses. They're violent, they're angry. They're engaged in sexual lifestyle that is abhorrent to God and against his word. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping their own intellect and celebrating a self-glorifying atheism. Many different things, and it's offensive to the Christian. It's offensive specifically to the family member who knows that they have been raised according to the word of God, brought up under the love of the word and in its teaching, and you get angry. How could you do this? How could you believe this? Why would you do that? How could you do that to yourself? And why would you walk away from God? And there's a tendency to look at them and just say, you need to get it together. Why don't you just grow up? Why don't you get your life on track? Why don't you do it? And then an even worse act of the anger would be this, to then turn their back on them and say, I'll have nothing to do with you. Don't come to the family gathering. Don't come to the holiday. Don't come anywhere around me until you're ready to become a Christian. I'll have nothing to do with you. Get out of my sight. You ever seen that? You ever experienced that? Have you ever done that? Anger, one response. Another response, and I think this is maybe even more common, is indifference. I raised my family in the church. I did the right things. My my children were always there on time. They even went to youth group. I paid for a Christian college and a Christian school. I know they say they don't believe, but down deep I just think, man, there's probably something down there. They, They actually do believe. 
Or maybe you've convinced yourself that God is just indifferent and it's all going to come out in the wash. It's all going to be cleaned up later. God's going to eventually forgive them. Uh, I, I took them to church. They were baptized. That's got to count for something, even though they openly say they don't believe in Jesus and they deny him. But it'll all work out eventually. And in cowardice, the mouth is closed and you don't say a word and you don't teach the wonderful, merciful love of Christ again and again and again to them. You give up. You started well. You were faithful. And then in that time where they deny Christ, you pull back and in fear, you just give up. And you're indifferent in your heart toward God. You're indifferent in your heart toward them. You're indifferent in your actions. But that's not Paul's response, is it? It's not anger, it's not indifference, no, it's a burdened and a broken heart. And this grows out of Paul's understanding of whose God is and his eternal character. He believes that our God is holy. And likewise, he believes that apart from Christ and the salvation that is had through him by faith, that we are accursed and cut off. That we're enemies of God and being a people cast out from God if not for Jesus. Paul knows that and that's what drives him to the sadness and the anguish. If that is not true, if God is not a God that punishes sin. If he is not a God who likewise extends a just hand against an unbeliever. Then Paul could never ever say what he's just said. He can't possibly But with the justice of God clearly in view, Paul can simply have a broken heart that is appropriate for this. That's what drives Paul down deep into his own heart. That's what makes him be a man who can say what he says. He says, I wish I myself could be cursed and cut off for them. I would switch places with them if it were at all possible. I love them so much. I would give up my place at the right hand of Christ. And I would give it to them if it were only possible. I would take their curse. I would dive into hell for them. And I wonder, do you hear the echoes of anyone else in the statement? Do you hear the echoes of Christ in a love that is bound on the work of Jesus, the Savior of sinners? I would be accursed. I would be cut off. Jesus was cursed and he was cut off for us. So that the words of John 15, 13 come home in the life and the heart of the family member who has an unbelieving family member. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How do we face this? How should we face an unbelieving child or family member? Well, we should have broken hearts. We should be real about who God is, and we should be a people with anguish over it. We should be mourning it, and you say, Pastor, you're telling me to be sad? Yes, I'm telling you to be sad. You should be sad about sad things, Christian. Because if you're not sad over it, if you're not 
clear about this, and you'll have no clarity to the remedy of the lost soul raised in the covenant community of God's people and in the church. Paul's clear about it. And yet we move on. And Paul outlines the necessity, the absolute necessity of saving faith in verses 4 and 5. So let me remind you, Paul's not just writing about anybody. It's not just the lost in general. No, no, these are the people of God. They are Israelites, verse 4. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And you have this litany, this great list of all of the privileges of the people of Israel. And it is not insignificant. It is huge. All of these things that God has given, all of these means that the Lord uses very powerfully in the lives of people to display Jesus to the lost and then to give saving faith in the heart of an unbelieving person. He calls them firstly Israelites and you may just pass over and say yeah we know about the state of Israel move on pastor but no there's significance to the name Genesis 32:28 when God deals with Jacob and identifies him and his household as a people precious in his sight it's as if the Lord gives this this sweet name to his child It's like a nickname of love. The Lord has renamed them and owned them very specifically as his own. You go in and he says, to them belong the adoption. And you say, well, you know, we know a little bit about adoption. That's whenever you bring a kid into your home that isn't naturally born of your household. Right, Pastor? The answer is yes, that's right. And then others of you will say, we know about adoption. We're Christians. We're well-educated, we're Presbyterians, we're Reformed, Pastor. We know a little bit about adoption, about how in Christ we become a child of God and are one of his family members. But where is Paul pointing? He's pointing way back. Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his children and that he is their father. The relationship between them and God is paternal and it's sweet whenever they cry out the Lord hears as a father hears the cry of his children and Paul is saying that has been the experience of Israel throughout history Deuteronomy 14 Isaiah 63 and 64 Hosea 11 there has been a culture between God and Israel and it has been the culture of a household where God is the father and they are his children He says, to them belongs the glory. And you might think to yourself, well, pastor, we have a sense of glory, right? We think a thing is glorious. Recently, I was in the Swiss Alps, and the mountains there are beautiful. They are striking, especially in the morning. Whenever the clouds clear and the dew burns away, and and there you go. You have the beauty of the mountains, and you're struck. You think, that is glorious, right? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying they look good. He's not saying they're a glorious nation. He's not saying they had glory in battle. No, he's referring specifically to the glory of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament calls it the Shekinah, where the Holy Spirit hovered in the Holy of Holies. 
Paul is saying it's not only that God put a name on them, not only that he called them his children, but he dwelt with them. He was there with them. He went ahead of them even into exile. The Lord has always been with them. And in their midst, the ancient church, likewise in the midst of the church today, he's been with them and they have been with him. This is the glory that whenever the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, if he was not a man of clean heart, this is the glory that struck him down in the moment and he had to be pulled by rope to safety. The glory, the presence of the everlasting, transcendent and holy God. He goes on, he says, to them belong the covenants Genesis 17, Deuteronomy 29, Exodus 24, 45, Leviticus 16. And you may say, okay, well, pastor, we know we're covenantal people. What does this mean? Well, this is the legal relationship between God and his people. We talk about contracts sometimes. They're called covenants. This is the agreement between God and his people throughout all of history. That he would be their God. That he would redeem them from their sin. This is the covenant that Abraham has whenever the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall on him. And the Lord passes between the pieces of cursing. Taking upon himself the responsibility to die for the sins of Israel. They have the covenants. They have the relationship that is sure with God. He goes on and he says, to them also has been the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the manner in which to live holy, to know that you have a God and that he demands righteousness and that if you are a sinner, you need a savior. To know that you have a God who is holy, that does punish and avenge sin and to have a God likewise that teaches you point by point, direction by direction, how to live after him. Paul's saying they've had that. They have had holy living. They have had a directory for life. They have had the word of God. They've had it. Not only that, they have the worship. What's that? It's the sacrificial system. It's the festivals. It's the sacrament and the word of God. It's all of these things given to them. Every means of appointment, they've had it all. They've had it all. All the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, sometimes so vividly displayed that you can almost touch his hands as you look over the Paschal Lamb slain. Paul says they've had it. Moreover, they've had the promises that were constantly whispered in their ears. I'm your God and I will always be your God and everlasting Father. I am your God and I will save you. I will deliver you over and over and over. So many scriptures that this page just can't even hold it. They have the patriarchs, the fathers from their race that receive the very specific promises. Moreover, they even have the Christ coming from their family line. Jesus is their cousin, their son and grandson. But they're not saved. God's people rejected God's Messiah. The Israelites, the covenant people, rejected the covenant promised Savior, the Redeemer of God's people. They looked on Him and in hate they persecuted Him even unto death. And you say, Pastor, I get it. 
I understand what Paul is saying. I think I do. He's saying those Israelites, those Jewish people, shouldn't they have known better? No, friend, I don't believe that's what he's saying. Because yes, they should have known better. However, they are a sinful people. Fallen and depraved with minds turned inward with hard hearts. What is the issue? What is Paul saying? Well, he's saying to them this, and he's saying to me and you this. You can have everything necessary for salvation. You can have Jesus walking in front of you as your cousin, sharing blood with him. You can have all the worship, all the law, all the promises, and all the covenant, and all the water of baptism, and all the things that you could possibly have that God has given as good to his people. But if you haven't got faith in Christ, you have nothing. There is an absolute necessity to saving faith. If you believe on Christ for redemption, you will certainly be saved. But apart from it, there is no hope of salvation. That's what Paul's saying. And how do we come at that for you then, Christian? How do we come at it for you in the seat as a member of this church or another church? who has an unbelieving child, daughter, father, brother, friend, however. Don't put your faith in the acts of religion, good and unhelpful. Don't presume on the grace of God that if you come in that door on Sunday and you listen to me talk on for an hour plus that that's going to redeem you or that I have some power in my prayer to save you. Don't presume on the water of baptism. Don't presume on the grace of the Lord's Supper. Don't presume on your mother and father being Christians. Don't presume on the family culture. Don't presume on any of these things. Not one of them can save if you don't believe on Christ for salvation. Not one of them can save you. Not one of them can save you. And you'll be just like the Israelites of old at a distance from God and cursed under his judgment. And you'll say, well, what happened? I went to church every day. I was there every time. I was there 80 years of my life. What happened? Living long in a life of empty religion without the very heartbeat of faith. That's what happened. Without faith, there is no hope of salvation. And I want to direct your attention to the end of the chapter so you can see where I'm coming from with this. So the Apostle Paul can encourage you. Verses 30 through the end of the chapter, verse 33. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame.
Salvation is by faith alone, through the grace of Christ alone, friend. That's it. And so you can come into this church, you can come in the midst of the people of God, you can come directly before the face of God in prayer with all of the baggage of your unfaithfulness or of your faithfulness. And you can say to the Lord, save me, I need Christ as my Savior, and he will save. But apart from faith, there is no salvation in Christ. And you may say, okay, pastor, I've heard the sermon, but then there begs the question, what do I do? What do I do about my kid? What do I do? I want him to be saved. I want him to be uh, in the kingdom. I know that you said these things can't save him, that darkening the door is not going to save him. Well, I'll tell you this much, it isn't going to hurt him either. And it won't hurt your soul. These are the things God has appointed for us to hear and believe on Christ. These are the things he normally works through for the salvation of the lost. So don't stop coming to church. Okay, pastor, you told me what not to do. What should I do? Pray for the mercy of God that saves. Pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work in the heart. Oh Lord, I know that you and you alone can save. Lord, I know that you have promised to be my God and the God of my children. And you plead with God, the Savior of sinners. Lord, save my son, my daughter, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister. Save them, oh Lord, please save them. I know you said you would. And then Christian, the other thing I would say to you is you speak the word of God boldly and in truth because you have a broken heart willing to die for them. Let him spit in your face. Let him hate you and deride you, but you be gracious and kind and truthful and you tell the truth in season and out of season and you constantly preach the gospel. Even like you did whenever they were in the cradle all the way through their time in your household and you do it until the day you die or they die and you leave it in the hands of God without presumption. Lord, save them. And you leave it in the hands of God who saves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we plead with you for the truth of our own salvation to be convened to us, to be made strong, O Lord, that we would know, if we are Christians, the great grace and mercy that we have been shown. Lord, we plead with you for the salvation of the lost in our own families, Lord, those who have not made a profession of Christ or those who have denied their former profession. Lord, we pray for true faith, true repentance. We plead with you that the things that they heard as a child, that when they are grown, they will not depart from them. That, Lord, they would open their heart to Christ by your power, that, Lord, you would give a heart of flesh where there has been a heart of stone. That, Lord, you would give blind eyes sight, that deaf ears would hear. Oh, Lord, that you would be the God who gives new life and new birth. We plead with you, Lord. We cry out, you are the God of, of covenants and the God of his promises. Lord, you are the God of the patriarchs. You are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his son for us. Lord, that's who you are and we plead with you. Oh Lord, that you would do the work of salvation in our families. Oh Lord, we believe that you are the God not only of believers but likewise also their children that they may become believers. 
We plead with you for it. Heavenly Father, we submit it all to you in faith that you are good and gracious. Oh Lord, that you save those who are far from you and you call those who are not your people to be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.